Uh, the title of the message is The Light of Truth in a Dark Generation. You know, context matters. We talk about it a lot, but any form of communication, context is essential. Football season just began. I don't want to get off on a big football thing, but I watched a game yesterday, and context had so much to do with the unique drama of it. I'll be quick with this. You're talking about a team who had won one game last year, lost 50 of its players in the spring, and then they brought in a new coach, extraordinary coach, you know, impacts the whole culture of the program, it's taking on the runner-up of the national championship, Texas Christian University, and they beat them yesterday, right? I mean, no, look, so my point is, though, I mean, it was a great game, but understanding the context of the game helped you understand just how brilliant the game was and what the game actually meant. Now, I say that because when we turn to John chapter 1, you have to understand the context here. I mean, you have a Jewish man who lived in the northern part of Israel, on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, which is actually a lake, Lake Kinneret. His father is an owner of a very prolific fishing business, and he has a brother named James. And so he's working with his dad and his brother, James. He is a, a faithful Jewish young man, a worshiper of the Lord God of Israel. He has an opportunity to follow Jesus, to be discipled by Jesus. Context, context, context. Context here is, is that Jesus is presenting himself as a rabbi. I mean, earlier John, and we'll get to this in a little bit, John the great the Baptist said that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, so he identified him as Messiah. But, I mean, Jesus has invited John and James to follow him, which means if you're going to be a disciple, you're going to be mentored by a teacher, it means that you're with them 24-7, you are memorizing what they're teaching, and the, and, the, and, the, and the point is you want to replicate it, you want to ultimately go and make other disciples. And we know something about this individual's personality. Jesus called John and James, who's pinning, John is pinning this, he called them sons of thunder. It's like, why do you call them sons of thunder? You know, it's like, you know, you ever see like these motorcycle guys, you know, driving by you and they got these leather jackets, they got these, these names on the back and stuff. You know, it's like, I don't want to be ridiculous, but like John, you know, was he wearing this leather jacket? Of course he wasn't, but sons of thunder, you know? Like, why would Jesus call them sons of thunder? Luke chapter 9, verse 51, maybe this is a little insight. They're making their way to Jerusalem and you have a Samaritan town who refuses to be hospitable to Jesus. It's John who says to Jesus, Jesus, should we call fire down from heaven like Elijah did and stinking cook these leftists? No, just kidding. Anyways, no, I'm just saying, no, I'm just saying. Like, like, and Jesus said, he huddled them. I said, you guys, listen, this is not the spirit of the father. I haven't come to destroy life. I've come to rescue life. But here's the thing about John. We know so much about his character. John was a man who was transformed by Jesus Christ. And his writings doubly underscore this big emphasis on truth. Is there such a thing as truth? What is ultimate reality? Is there something that 
you could say, okay, this is ultimate reality, or is truth something we make up? Is it driven by relativism? Big emphasis on truth, big emphasis on love, big emphasis on grace. In fact, in 3 John verse 4, it's John who penned this. He said, you know, I have no greater joy than to see my children walk in truth. That's a scripture that Chuck Smith wrote in my Bible, by the way. But he's quoting John, truth, love the truth. On the day of Passover, revealing in so many ways, the same day it would be that Jesus would give his life on the cross. And in a Passover Seder, it's John, the one pinning this, who's leaning up on the chest or near the chest of Jesus, and he identified himself as the one that Jesus loved. And just a few hours later when, oh man, Judas is spearheading this betrayal and, and there's a rest in the garden of Gethsemane, you have John, hear this, John is the one that follows Jesus up close and personal. He, he, he actually went into the, the patio of the high priest. It was Peter, bless his heart, uh, who was following from afar. It's John. It's John who was at the cross on Passover, historically the day the children of Israel delivered out of Egypt, and now 13 years later, it's like Jesus is bringing the new exodus to impact the entire world. It's John who hears Jesus from the cross makes seven statements. I think the fourth one, if I'm remembering it correctly, was, or might have been the second one, was essentially, John, I want you to take care of my mom. It's like, I, I went for the rest of it, just take care of Mary. And, and then he said to his mother, I mean, this is honoring the fifth commandment in God's top 10. Okay, a mother, mom, you know, or woman, behold your son. So intense, after the resurrection. He was witness of the resurrection, the nail-pierced hands and feet, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. He was the one who eventually they tried to murder. He's the one that penned the book of Revelation. The context was, by the way, we start Revelation Wednesday. He, he penned the Revelation, and it was in the context that they had exiled him to the island of Patmos after trying to murder him. Look, context, context, context. John is pinning this book. His, his, his purpose is to convince hearers that Jesus is the Son of God. He states this. He says, these are, things are written that you may believe. Jesus is the Christ, Son of God, and that by believing on him, you may have life in his name. So here you have this Jew, personally mentored, not a greater education, by the greatest rabbi, more than a rabbi, king of Israel, son of God. And now he's like, okay, he's writing a book inspired by the Holy Spirit. The objective is to convince his hearers and listeners Jesus is the son of God. Are you guys with me on this? Now look, here what, here's what you have like in the first few words of his book. It marks, it marks one of the greatest turning points in philosophical and theological history. So you got this young man who comes from the north. He's like 75 miles from Jerusalem. He's living in a city not far from the Via Maris, which is the main highway, goes all the way to Persia down to Egypt. Super well-educated in the sense that he's been educated by Jesus himself. He was a follower of the Lord God of Israel prior to this. 
And he frames his remarks. And he's like, like, we really want to hone in on this. Like, he, look, look at the first three words here. He says, in the, what's the next word? In the beginning. So we parallel that to the Torah, which begins in the beginning. And what's the next word? God. Good. So he says, in the beginning was the, what's the next word here? Word. Okay. And the word was with God and the word was God. Whoa. It's like, well, like, why are we saying woe to such? Um, because the Greek word for word there is the term logos. And in short, the Greeks believed. Again, his objective is I'm going to bring the truth of Jesus to the known world, to a Greek-speaking world. And the Greeks believed that they believed that there was a reality that existed outside the material world. They believed actually in eternal reality. And this eternal reality made sense of the world. They, they called it logos. To them, it was an eternal grid of rationale, reason, and logic that made sense of the world that enabled man to know the truth. But at this particular time, when John is pinning this, he's saying, look, in the beginning was the word logos. The idea is, is that, that logos is not abstract. It's not, it's not just like this abstract, impersonal reality. He's going to say in just a, a bit, you know, it's like, no, the eternal reality, ultimate reality is a person. At this particular time in history, you have the, the belief in logos, just quickly here, on its last threads, Pyro, who was the philosophical mentor to Alexander the Great, took a, a trip east with Alexander, and he ended up hanging out, if I could say so, with some Buddhist monks. And the Buddhist monks presented a completely different worldview. If they were writing John 1, they would say, in the beginning was silence. In the beginning, nothing. And so if you want to know ultimate reality, you've got to empty your head of ideas. You too need to learn silence. And from Buddhism, you have schools being created, the purpose of which was to empty the mind. There's nothing out there, certainly no rational being or God who can reveal truth. And Pyro had brought this leaven of infection, of doubting Logos back to the Greek world. So by the time of the birth of Jesus, and Jesus is standing before Pilate, and Jesus said, I've come to bear witness of the truth. He said, I'm the king, come bear witness of the truth. Remember what Pilate said? He said, well, what is, what is truth? Maybe with a sigh, maybe with a sneer. Today, we actually see parallels. What, Western civilization was built, was created by reason and revelation. Today, our culture is increasingly influenced by, in the beginning, silence. If there's truth, the truth is there's no truth. The academic fashion is nihilism, the belief in nothing. 
So today, the call increasingly is to empty your mind of all its prior frameworks. Empty it of the idea of what marriage is or family or male-female, nation, sexual relations, etc. I mean, this is what's happening right next door, actually, in this grammar school I'm so concerned about. I know you are as well, right? This crazy new curriculum. And I, I talk about it all the time, but these kids, I mean, it's just... It's just makes you want to weep. So what they're being taught increasingly is that you gotta, you got to empty your thinking of any type of prior framework, including your parents, by the way. But, oh, they send you to school, and it's like, I don't know, that you're a boy. I mean, no, you're, you're going to affirm that. Look, the, the reality is fluid, and you determine what reality is. Are you guys with me on that? I mean, that's what we're seeing today. And, and listen, and now what you have, and not to be hyperbolic, but in some cases, it's like law is le- being leveraged, actually, to force one to embrace this. So what is going to be, re- what will replace it? Like, Jesus said truth sets you free, but this is not truth. I mean, I think it was, I heard Charlie say, you know, I mean, there's freedom, but then there's freakdom. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just like thinking leads to freakdom. No, it's true. See, the culture of the Bible was not emptying your thinking. It was actually filling your thinking. Truth, 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 truth. I mean, in this particular book, 22 times he mentions truth. Like John 1.14. Real quick, I'm going to watch this. Jesus was full of grace and truth. John 3.21. Jesus said, he who does truth comes to the light. John 4.23. True worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit. They that worship him shall worship in spirit and truth. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you'll know the truth. The truth shall set you free. I am the way, the truth, the life. I'm going to send the spirit. The spirit is the spirit of truth. In other words, he's going to give you an accurate view of who God is and who you are. Because it's like, we don't know who created us. We don't know the creator. We have no idea who we are. We have no idea the purpose of life. Jesus said, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is, everybody say it, truth. So here's point number one. What is truth? Truth is a person. I mean, when Jesus said in the beginning was the word, the word is with God, the word was God, jump down to verse 14, you guys. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. As of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, like 100% overflowing, full of grace. And what's the next word? Truth. I mean, how does this speak to us with regard to like who, God, who is God? I mean, really, we don't know who he is unless he reveals himself and he has revealed himself. And the Bible identifies that he is triune in nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The phrase here, in the beginning, was, the word was is in the Greek imperfect tense, which means it was continuing. In fact, the entire verse bears this sense. You could like read it, in the beginning was continuing the word, and the word was continuing with God, and the word was continually God. So the point number two, as we have it on the screen, is that logos, that which is eternal, recognized by the Greeks, is not an abstract reality, but it's actually a person who wrapped himself in human form. In John 8, it's like some of the 
Jews, and I'm so glad they're asking this question. It's like, hey, tell us plainly who, tell us, tell us plainly who you are. And it's like, and, and Jesus was much more specific than saying, well, I am God. I mean, surely McLean claimed to be God. I mean, he said, before Abraham was, I am. I'm the self-existing one, the one who's always been, the eternal one. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, the Bible says. God was made known in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. And let me ask you a question. When you were a child, I had this flashback the other day, and, um, but when you were a child, did you ever, when you were going to bed and um, the lights turned out, did you ever like, did your imagination ever go wild? And like, you know, I don't know, I could just see for me, like I would look up on the ceiling and we had this little popcorn ceiling stuff. I could have, I was like, there's a dog, there's, a, I mean, I saw figures on the ceiling. Like this is the first time I've ever talked about I'm feeling a little vulnerable. No, but <laughs> did anybody ever see anything in the dark? Did you guys, any, did your imaginations ever go wild? Did your imagination go wild? Okay, okay, thank God. No, no, seriously, did, you guys, did your imagination go crazy in the dark? Did, yes or no? Okay, okay. okay. Listen, like, I, and it's true. It's interesting because darkness is an interesting... In fact, I have these notes up on the screen. I want to show you this. The, the Bible says that, that the world outside of Jesus Christ is in a place of darkness. Okay, so Jesus is the light Okay, so he's the light intellectually, morally, with regard to revelation, who is God. Jesus is the light. The absence of light, you know, well, you have darkness. Darkness cannot comprehend or have power over light. But the point is, I want to make, is that like, where the, where you, when you're in darkness, your, your imagination runs wild. So now you're starting to attribute you're starting to attribute things that actually don't exist as if they did exist. So now you're potentially in an alternate reality. It's like when I was, just my imagination used to go wild. I just remember little fragments, so I don't remember what I used to see, but sometimes it would scare me a little bit. So now it's like, and then you get, then it's like, whoa, what is, it? you know, you're just a kid, you're working this thing out. Then you got fear enters the picture. And fear has a paralyzing influence in our life. Our, our beliefs, if we're in the dark we, and we're driven by imagination, and so it's not reality, but we're driven by an alternate of imagination, it's not based in reality, then um, we're basing our beliefs on something that's not real. And like the other day, because we, we took a little trip and then I came back, I, I mean, I got up in the middle of the night to go to the restroom and uh, and so I, I was so used to making a left that I, I, I forgot where I was. I was like, oh, I needed to make a right. And uh, well, I'm really telling you everything about me this morning. <laughs> you know, so anyways, but, you know, the thing, the point is, I didn't run into the wall. I, I just remember thinking, oh, no, wait, geez, I mean, no, it's actually this way. You know, it's like, I, but when you're in the dark, you, you, it's like you can make decisions and you, you're not taking into account the consequences of those decisions. I mean... The Bible says that the world without Jesus is in a dark place. Jesus is the truth. He is the light of the world intellectually and morally. 
And if one is not walking in Christ, then one is walking in darkness, intellectually, morally, revelationally. And here's why. I mentioned earlier, because without the Creator revealing Himself to us, we have no idea who He is, we have no idea who we are, we have no idea the plan of God. And point number three is, look, we're living in this generation of major relativism. It's taken, it's taken a major turn. We know this. Where you're making up the rules as you go, and even where make believe, you make believe. You make it, you create it. Make believe is becoming increasingly prominent. And, and what we need to do as followers of Jesus is help a generation make a distinction. That the idea of someone saying, my truth has no authoritative basis whatsoever. There is the truth. The truth. And the truth is a person. In addition to that, as we're going to learn just a little bit, it's also a plan. It's a plan. I mean, John, we're going to read this in a moment. John the Baptist. And Jesus said, there's not a greater prophet ever born of a woman. When he sees Jesus, he identifies this genius plan of the Heavenly Father. He's the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. In other words, he's going to fix it. He's going to bring wholeness. The core problem is broken relationship with Almighty God. Jesus is the answer. What he's going to accomplish on the cross is a, a work that is going to bring a regeneration from the inside out in people's lives, ultimately on planet Earth himself, itself. And notice verse 14, that phrase, dwelt among us, actually makes the connection between God dwelling with Israel in transition between Egypt to Israel, where he dwelt in a tent, the tabernacle. And he's, and he's just saying that Jesus is God tabernacling. He's dwelling with us. He he put upon himself human flesh, right? I mean, putting these, this is all important doctrine and theology, but you remember the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John witnessed Jesus' transfiguration. You go, wow, that's a great miracle. No, the miracle is he veiled who he is in glory, you know, for 33 years. He veiled it. So he, he, he came, he tabernacled, he lowered himself. I mean, the idea is that Almighty God's like this Mozart symphony. He reduces himself, if you will, to a three-chord country song. It's like he lowers himself, and his glory is like, oh, man, his glory. What? What is the glory? What's, what's, what's the glory? Oh, um, behold, his glory, the glory as of the only begotten. It's a loaded term in Scripture. It, it, it goes right back, just real quick, right back to the Davidic king that promised through David there's going to be a unique son who established the kingdom. This is son, Davidic king, son, God became a man. That's the idea. Watch this. Full of grace and truth. Listen, Jesus was not 50% grace, 50% truth. He was like 100% grace, 100% truth. It's like, and, and he, at times though, he would lead with grace, unmerited favor. Hey, aren't you grateful for the grace of God? And seriously, like, grace means unmerited favor. If you break down the term grace, G-R-A-C-E, in acronym form, God's riches at Christ's expense. We're actually saved by grace. He gives us something we do not deserve. 
We are gifted by grace, sustained by grace. We'll be glorified by grace. Grace, 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 grace. Can I hear a big amen to that? It's awesome, right? Grace, 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 for sure. Full of grace and full of truth. It's like John 1, God led with grace. He sent John the Baptist to give Israel an opportunity. John 2, Jesus led with grace, turning water into wine at a wedding. John 2, we don't have time to look at it, but he comes into Jerusalem. Listen, it's Passover. He leads now with truth. This is like at the beginning of his ministry. He turns over the money changers in the temple. The temple is the epicenter of Israel. It's a place of prayer, education, worship, purpose to be a witness to the nations, a house of prayer to the nations. And he's like, this thing, this thing has become like this epicenter to make merchandise, merchandise off of Judaism. He comes in and is like, man, he, he just clears it. It's been def terribly defiled. I mean, goodness gracious. And the ones who would have been offended by that would have been the aristocracy in Israel. It would have been the high priest himself who was making a killing off of selling wares in the temple. I don't know, just that idea like follow the money. I mean, that, I'll tell you something. Like, you know, if you're offended, it's like you want to know what's going on, follow like the money, right? I mean, I'm just thinking about what's happening as we enter the fall, like all this push for, seriously, for vaccines and boosters. It's like, um, hey, it's called big pharma, man. Exploiting fear over a false threat to make merchandise over trying to sell some sense of health and well-being. Follow the money, right? And when Jesus was arrested, the first person they took him to was Caiaphas. I, Annas, excuse me, who was, used to be the high priest, but the Romans outlawed him, and he made his son-in-law the high priest, Caiaphas. Because they were so threatened by Jesus. Jesus said, you can't serve God and money. They both demand your complete allegiance. But Jesus led with truth there. And then yet he's extending grace because he's on the cross. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And we could go on and on. I mean, the woman at the well. I mean, I just love this. It's like we talk about it all the time. But she's, she runs to her city Come meet the man who told me everything about my life. Well, wait a second. He just drew out. You've been married five times. You're living with someone. It's like, why are you so excited about that? I mean, he's in essence, because like I've never been loved by a man who knew, knew me, really knew me, and still loved me. It's like the Lord totally knows us, truth, but totally loves us, grace. Can I hear an amen to that? It's like, are you kidding? That is phenomenal. Here's the thing. We need to embody grace and truth as well. And it's not just like a little 50% there. It's like, no, full-on grace, yet truth. God help us. And in application, it could be like, hey, listen, there's an opponent here, maybe a different view, but listen, grace, grace, grace. It's okay. Be patient, non-reactive. And then notice here, in verse 29. Let's move on with our study here. It says, the next day, we're introduced to John. John saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And this is he of whom I said, after he comes, a man who is preferred before me, for he 
was before me. I did not know him. But that he should be revealed to Israel, and therefore I came baptizing with water. John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained on him. I did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and testified, this is the Son of God. And the next day John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Like, I can imagine if you're here for the first time, Lamb of God. I mean, it sounds weird. I, at least it did when I started to read. It's like, it's a loaded, loaded idea there. Lamb? Lamb of God? Is this Lamb God? God? I mean, what, are you, what are you talking about? Um, it, it gets to the fourth point, which is the Lamb of God. And this idea speaks actually, and this is truth, that truth is an unfolding plan that will never be stopped. And it's framed in the Passover story, something that you know full well. You know, it was at a Passover Seder, and I alluded to it earlier, that Jesus identified himself as the central figure in God's unfolding plan. He said, do this in remembrance of me. So in other words, it's like God delivered the children of Israel out of stinking totalitarianism and enslavement, really demonic influence that we're going after kids, restricting worship. Pharaoh tried to stand in front of the unfolding plan of God. Not good. The Bible says you bless Israel, God will bless you. You curse Israel, God will curse you. He cursed Israel. He was cursing Israel. He was trying to stand in front of the unfolding plan of God in and through Israel. Can I hear an amen to that? It's the truth. So... Now Jesus is saying, hey, look, now when you have that Passover Seder remembering God's genius plan of deliverance, remember me. And that's what we want to do. I mean, this is where we want to transition. Um, look, in origin, for Jesus to say, do this in remembrance of me, we have to ask, what is the this? I mean, it's, it's, in the, it's, it's a specific day. It's the day he gave his life. It's Nisan 14, which may sound weird. That's a biblical calendar. It's like historically children of Israel delivered out of Egypt. So it's like, I'm just telling you, first application, context, he's speaking to his Jewish followers. He's saying, in essence, every Passover, now, from now, do this in remembrance of me. So when we hold the bread, this is not Passover today, but we're going to remember the context in which Jesus inaugurated communion. Very, very important. To lose context, we lose content and the course God intended for our lives. Very, very important. And he said, like, one day we're going to drink of the cup in the kingdom. So this Passover will be celebrated. What we're going to partake of a little bit, we're going to be partaking with the Lord when he establishes his kingdom on planet Earth. We, we will celebrate. It's like, oh my goodness, we, you know, we, I don't know if we're going to be thinking these things. You know, we had these communion service. We were remembering what you accomplished, what you accomplished, what you will accomplish. And now it's been accomplished. And now we're going to partake of it in celebration that it's been accomplished. Well, listen, we, we, when we receive communion, we ought to celebrate. It's a done deal. Like Jesus, the Lamb of God, takes away the sins of the world. He's the Savior of the world. He's the King of kings. He's coming back and nothing's going to stop him. 
When we receive communion, it's threefold. So seriously, like this morning, we want to look back. In fact, if you just turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that would be fantastic. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says in verse 26, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. He said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So the thing is, is that when we receive communion, it's threefold. It's, it should be a time, and, and we will do this, that we need to remember him. We need to remember back. We need to go, we need to go back. I mean, to the Lord, it's just a few days ago. To us, it's a thousands of years. We'll learn in our Revelation study, like when John is caught up in heaven and sees what reality is, he sees immediately the lamb that was slain. So we're never to forget what Jesus accomplished for us. And look, John 19 says that he was scourged. We don't have a lot of details in the Gospels of the crucifixion. We have some, some but we don't, have, we don't have like, it's not like watching, oh, what was that movie that came out? That, the Passion is right. Yeah, there you go. A lot of details right in there. We don't have like the details here, but we know crucifixion. Listen, they used to beat subjects who were sentenced to be crucified with the cat of nine tails. So that's bone and glass and zinc, interestingly. So the Lord would have been, he, he would have been put up on this um, type of uh, table of sorts, and he, he would have had his, his wrist stretched with a rope and he would have been lifted up on the ground so he's fully stretched out, fully exposed, being beaten. And they would beat their subjects 40 times minus one, and the purpose of the scourging was to produce further confession of, of lawlessness. So we have to ask the question, because Jesus was perfect and he never committed a sin, did he have anything to confess, and was he scourged 39 times? I mean, I think so personally. And then ultimately at the crucifixion site, of course, he's laid down, his hands and feet are pierced. When they lifted up the cross, they had dug a hole and they just lifted up and then, you know, put the cross down into this hole, which, which would, would have caused all kinds of damage to his body and possible dislocation. And we could just go on and on and on. And when the Lord was on the cross at 9 a.m., as I mentioned he made seven statements, four of which took place before noon. The first one was, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then he made the, he made the statement. I don't remember the exact sequence, but he made seven. And then darkness from noon to three. Darkness, there's an earthquake. And then it's broken with this cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he's quoting Psalm 22, which is a prophecy. That is incredible details. In fact, I remember coming to faith in the Lord Jesus. I was just 16, reading this. I can close my eyes and still see it. And reading the details, running up to my dad and saying, Dad, look, at this was written a thousand years before. His hands, feet, pierced. I mean, the description is unmistakable. When Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He knew the answer to it. He knew the answer to the question. He was being forsaken so that we would not be forsaken. 
He was bearing our sin. He became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so look, when we hold the bread, when we hold the bread, it's striped and it's pierced and it's unleavened. Leaven is a type of sin. A lot of details there. But, but when we digest it, it's so light and so easy to digest, it speaks of the weightiest realities that we must never allow some cognitive dissonance with. We, we need to be intentional. Can I hear an amen to that? Like, intentional. And so it's really light, but it's like the heaviest, weightiest, re, speaks of the weightiest realities, for sure. And then, look, I'm going to partake of broken, the broken bread, speaks of the broken bread. You're going to partake. It also speaks that we are the body of Christ. We digest. We're one in Christ. We're one with each other. We have differences. We want to major on the majors and not the minors. Super important, right? Can I hear an amen to that? And we need to learn to forgive and let go. Really important. Greatest need in our life is to receive forgiveness and to give forgiveness. Otherwise, our life becomes consumed by bitterness and hatred and it becomes really small. So let it go. Forgive. Doesn't mean... Well, if you're thinking of someone that's really injured, it doesn't mean that, you know, you trust them now. I mean, you can still forgive, and yet there's healthy boundaries because trust takes time. But we're not to be informed by bitterness and unforgiveness. It, it, it will just destroy us, right? We're under its injury. We're allowing it. The Lord wants us free from it. And so... When we hold the cup, oh, it's just monstrositous. It's like, it speaks of his blood that inaugurated the new covenant. <laughs> Big ideas. He wants you to fresh receive your forgiven. Past, present, and future of your sins. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen. Number two, know that the Spirit is in you, transforming you. New covenant is the guarantee of the preservation of Israel. It's true. The new covenant is the promise that one day Jews will turn and embrace Jesus as Messiah, Romans 11. And that one day, as he says here, we actually remember his death till he comes. And in the meantime, we are on mission. We're, we're truth bearers. We embody grace and we embody truth, 100% grace, 100% truth. So help us, God. Amen. Yeah. So we're going to have the gals come and let's pray. And uh, for those of you that perhaps have not received the communion elements, in terms of, there's little cups that are available in the courtyard, in the, uh, the foyer. So if you, don't have, if you don't have your cup and you'd like to participate, Please, you're welcome to go pick one up. And um, so, this, listen. Let's let's pray. And then, and then, what I want us to do is, I I want to make sure I want to invite anyone who has yet to receive communion. Please hear me. Biblically, there's clear instruction here that someone who has not yet received Christ, turned from their sin, turned to Jesus Christ. You're not to receive communion. It's not like some shaming you in any way. No, it would be a mockery to. 
Because it speaks of, right? It speaks of the truths that we've been talking about. But can I, can I tell you, that can change for your life. In other words, this morning, you can receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I mean, seriously, you can receive grace. The Bible says we're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift he wants to give us, and he wants you to open that gift. It could be said with, with your left hand, he wants you to re- open the gift, repent. That means to turn from a self-centered life to a God-centered life. Make a U-turn in life. Jesus said, there's a broad way that leads to destruction. Many go that way, a narrow way that leads to eternal life. You be that, find it. Repent. So that's your left hand, so to speak. Your right hand, talking about like opening the gift, right? That's belief. Jesus died on the cross. He resurrected from the dead. He is who he claimed to be. Please, hey, listen, without Jesus, our world is in darkness. And what we're seeing today in our world is increasing darkness, which is, which is a reality that reflects that Jesus is true, that what we need is Jesus. He is the light. Can I hear an amen to that? It's like, a broken world and that's continuing to break and, un, you know, desensitize and disintegrate just speaks of, man, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is the answer. So I, I want to, I just want to say before we move on, for someone here for the first time, I'm so glad that you're here. Hey, I would like to invite you to receive communion so long as you've turned to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you've put your faith in him. And you know, the Lord is obviously really, really big and really, really aware, and he can hear your prayer. He can hear the prayer of your heart. And you can say to him, Lord, I need you. I need your forgiveness. I need your help. I want you to come into my life and be my Savior and be my Lord. I mean, there's not like... There's not like some method here, but we need to make a confession that's true. The Bible says, if I confess Jesus is Lord, and he's Lord, and I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, I'll be rescued. And if you mean that, the Lord will honor it, and he'll come and take residence in your life and begin a work in you that he will guarantee forever. So let me just wrap it up by saying, if you've yet to receive Christ, why don't you in your heart and in prayer just say, Father, I believe in your son. I believe in your, I wanna follow Jesus. I'm not asking you to follow a church or me, I'm asking you to follow Jesus Christ, the savior of the world, the Lord of Lord, the King of Kings. Say, Lord, I wanna follow your son, Jesus. I, I need your forgiveness. I want you to come into my life. I turn from my sin to you as Savior and Lord. And look, if you mean that, man, praise God.